Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will continue teaching us from the book of Esther. Now, this teaching series will be every Thursday and Friday leading up to Purim on March 15th. Then Tom Cantor will resume teaching from Exodus every Thursday and Friday. Remember that all of the Exodus, Esther, Genesis, and other special messages from Tom Cantor are available for free listening and free download at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find the podcast of Friendship with God on iTunes, so just type in Tom Cantor or type in Friendship with God and then subscribe to the Friendship with God podcast. Yesterday, Tom Cantor taught us some of the important things we'll be learning from the book of Esther. And at the end of yesterday's program, we learned about the first words that are in the book of Esther. It came to pass. Now, these words from Esther teach us that when it came to pass, the wonderful hand of God was going to be working in the life of Esther and not just having good luck. Now, here's Tom Cantor today as we continue our new teaching study from the book of Esther on the Friendship with God radio program. Someone says to me recently, they said, good luck. They say to me, good luck. And whenever somebody says that to me, I always turn around and says, no, I don't have an Irish God. (laughs) And believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't see life as good luck and bad luck. You know, it came to pass. We see an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God, an all-present God. Psalm 103, 19. His kingdom ruleth over all. His kingdom rules over everything. And we're going to see quite a thing here with Ahasuerus and his kingdom. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11, God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That's how God does it, after the counsel of his own will. We are, as we said, unlike the rulers like Ahasuerus here who are going to look at, God doesn't have a cabinet of advisors to help him make decisions. And so the book is this high-paced drama, and, we, and there's a stage set, and then appearing onto the stage is one character after another. You know the great thing about this book, the way God does it, is that there's time taken to develop the character of each person who appears on the stage. Boy, I so much appreciate that. Develop, he's developing the character, so you get a really great picture. And our first character is, enter onto the stage, one named Ahasuerus. So now our goal is to find out, who is this man named Ahasuerus? And the verses, they they tell us, first of all, you have to know that Ahasuerus was not his actual name. That was his title, just like Caesar. You know, there's no Mr. Caesar and Mrs. Caesar, right? There's just, the Caesar was not the ruler's name. It was like the title of Kaiser or Tsar, meant emperor. You know, there was Caesar, there was Augustus, that was his name. Or there was Julius Caesar, Claudius Caesar, those, those were his names. In the same way, Ahasuerus is, is the name of his title, and it means great father. That gives you a little bit of clue into the character of this man. He's called the great father. His name was actually Xerxes. Xerxes. Now, right away, we see a man who wants to be known as the great father. That's his title. That's a title for God, the great father. And we are told that this man had a tremendous kingdom. Hard for us to imagine it today. We haven't seen a kingdom like this in our, our lifetime. It stretched from... Ethiopia, all the way up across, all the Middle East, Asia Minor there. It stretched all the way to India. So here's a man that had a tremendous kingdom. And this man had a tremendous opinion of himself. Put it mildly. See in verse 2 where it says, he sat on his throne. Tremendous pride. You know, whenever you see pictures of Persian kings, they're always typically sitting there with the 
the sultan and the people fanning them and so forth and all the servants all around and tending to his every need. That was the way he was. And in verse 3, we're told that in the third year of his reign, because he took over from another man named Darius the Great, and he has this idea, Xerxes has this idea, I think I'll make a great feast, a feast like there's never been before a feast. And it tells us that he makes this feast. But what it doesn't say, but we know from history, was that Xerxes at this time was thinking to himself, I think I'll invade Greece. I think I'll conquer Greece. That's what he had in mind. So there's this huge decision going on in his mind that really determined his destiny. And maybe it was to get himself convinced of how great he was that he wanted to have this feast. Maybe he wanted to get everybody else convinced and have confidence that he could win in the battle with Greece that made him decide that was a big feast. I don't know, but for whatever reason, he has this big feast and he invites rulers and officers And at the conclusion of this big feast, he's going to tell them all, I've decided, because you've seen how great I am in all my glory and power, that we're going to have war with Greece. We're going to invade Greece. So he brings out all of his rulers to this feast. Verse 4, we learn that this was a feast of tremendous expense. Ahasuerus was a man of arrogance. Arrogance, pride, self-indulgence, given over to great moodiness. And the feast was not just going to last for a day or a week. This was a feast for six months. Six months. What would Jenny Craig say? And every day for six months, there would be a new presentation of a new theme. And what was the theme? Was always the same thing. The glory of Ahasuerus. And the riches of Ahasuerus. And the power of Ahasuerus. It was all about Ahasuerus. So it says in verse 4, when it puts it this way, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom in honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days, every day for on and on, they kept drinking and bragging and all the pompous self-flattery and arrogance. And he just kind of became intoxicated with wine and he became intoxicated with himself as this went on. And in verse 5, it says, when he was drunk, so to speak, with the conceit and the pride of his own self-importance, he's got another idea. And another idea is, why just have these governors and officers admire me? Why don't we just extend this feast to all the people in this uh, palace city of Shushan? So they can worship me and they can admire me too. So he orders a feast now for seven more days for everybody in his garden. And he says, Everybody should come. Small people, great people, everyone should come. This was the pinnacle of his proud display. The pinnacle of it all. His glory. Nothing's held back on this thing here. And look at verse 6. The place was so impressively decked out that the brilliant colors are listed here. And he said there were huge hangings. Must have been of drapes are described. And you turn this way and it was white. And you turn that way and it was green. And this way and it was blue. And the cords are described to hang them. It says they're fine linens. And then something wonderful, something very wonderful is called out the rings that held the dream. Somehow they went from purple to silver. And they were all there. And they held up and there were pillars of marble. Must have been something. Pillars of marble, it says. And then there were beds to lie down, beds of gold and beds of silver. And all the common people came in there. They'd never seen anything like this before. And they walked on these pavements, mother of pearl pavement, and marble colors of brilliant red and blue and black. Just are spectacular sights. 
that are there. And then there was wine. Everybody was served goblets of wine, of gold. They served the wine. here, Gold. And they weren't the same. They were different, all of them. What it says. And it was in abundance, and it was flowing and flowing. By the way, in, in the beginning of our business, most of our customers were in Europe. So I had to do a lot of traveling over to France and Germany and Italy. You know, it's the land of wines. And we always had this routine. The routine was, you know, they said, okay, you know, here we are in a special place, and here's a special wine. And they'd always say, and they'd say, oh, no, it says, uh, because they knew I was a Christian, they would taunt me. And they would say, you don't drink alcohol? <laughs> you're, you're one of those Christians that doesn't drink? Mm, you know, they, they would like to do that. And so I had to come up with a line. I said, well, I said, I said uh, Proverbs 31.6 says, give strong drink to him that's ready to perish. And wine to those who are of a heavy heart. And then I would say, your company is really not that bad. (laughs) I just don't feel like I'm ready to perish right now and have a heavy heart. Anyway, I don't know if you could do that in Shushan the Palace. Because the wine was flowing, and don't let verse 8 make you think that you could just comfortably say, no, no, no. What's actually saying there is that the king was drinking, everybody knew it, and it was not a good idea for you to not drink. So... You're not compelled, you had to make your own choice, but you better choose one way. And in verse 9, it says, Vashti, his wife, his wife Vashti, she made a feast for the women in the palace. And now was the climax of the great feast. This drunken affair that had gone up for 187 days, seeing and hearing about the glory of one man, Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus has just been incredibly lifted up in this event here. Like God, he was lifted up. And it's the seventh day, and he's drunk. It says he was merry with wine. He was happy drunk. Better than being not happy drunk. And he has in his mind, whatever I want, I can have. Because I'm powerful. That's what he thought. And so he orders his men to bring Vashti. Bring Vashti. And it means in Persian, the best. Bring her that's named the best. Who was evidently the best looking? She was the most beautiful. And, and since King Ahasuerus felt, nothing can deny me. Nothing can be denied to me. As a matter of fact, I can have anything I want. I can even violate the dignity and decency of women. So, he says, bring her in with the crown royal so that all women can see the beauty of the queen. Now, According to the Jewish history book of the Targum, we're told what actually was being requested here. When he was asking for Vashti to be brought in wearing the crown royal, it meant wearing only the royal crown. So just as he had displayed all of his beauty of his kingdom and his possessions, he wanted to now display the beauty of his uncovered wife as a possession also. This is not a nice man, Ahasuerus. I hope you're getting the picture that God has painted here. This is not a good man. This is not a nice man. Because we're painting a picture here, and you've got to remember for four weeks, that an innocent Jewish girl named Hadassah is being put into. But our God rules over all. And that's what we're going to see. So anyway, so what happens is that she, he calls for this, and in verse 16 it says, And the queen Vashti refused to come to, at the king's commandment. Well, you can't blame her. Well, I mean, you know, she may not live long, but anyway. But, but all of a sudden, this half-year party abruptly comes to an end. Just like that. 
because the king has been refused. And it says in verse 12, he was very wroth, and it says his anger burned in him. You think it was hot? That the, the furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into? That's the way he felt like that furnace. He was burning hot. Who? How? He just was so angry. Now, that's act one in the book of Esther. The party's over, and we're going to see what happens from here. But let's just pause now and just think about the character of this man, Ahasuerus. He's a man of arrogance. He's a man who's full of himself. He's big-headed. He's a man of conceit and pride and self-importance, and he's given to moves. He's very impulsive, and he loves his own glory. And anyone that's around him, he's a dangerous man. He's a dangerous man to be around. You know, he had a rule that we'll see later that anyone that he didn't call for that came to see him, that was instant death. That was automatic death. They just cut off his head unless he did a very unusual thing and held out the scepter. What does the Bible say about a man like this? What does the Bible say about a man of arrogance and pride such as Ahasuerus? Turn, if you would, to Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what it says. Pride goeth before a fall. A fall is just in front of the proud. You know, Ahasuerus, he did go to war with Greece, and he lost. And during that war, he sent his navy of 300 ships over to be a part of the invasion, the army invasion for Greece. And in the Battle of Salamis there, where the ships got stuck in a strait near Cyprus, and all 300 ships were destroyed. He lost all of his ships. And history tells us that Ahasuerus was so angry when he learned that he lost his 300 ships that he went down to the sea with a belt and he beat the water for destroying his boats. You know, I mean, it sounds like he's out of his mind, right? But you see how God was dealing with this man because his wife's refusal was a warning from God. You're going down the wrong road. Stop. Turn. Repent. Turn to God. Remember Nebuchadnezzar. Turn to God. But he refused to. And he went down this road. And he lost his army over there in Greece. And it wasn't very long, just a few years, less than 10 years from where we are right now, that he was assassinated. Xerxes was assassinated. But he reminds us of Herod. He reminds us of Herod. He reminds us, who went down, you remember Herod went down to Tyre and Sidon and he put on his gorgeous kingly robes and his clothes and he, he didn't even stand. He sat on his throne and he gave this speech. And the people shouted with a loud voice. They said, that's not the voice of man, that's the voice of God. And what did Herod say? Did Herod say, no, praise the Lord. Instead, he didn't. He just accepted it. He didn't protest. He didn't protest. Remember John in Revelation, when the messengers from God came to him in the book of Revelation, it happened in Revelation 19.10 and also in Revelation 22.9, and brought him the message, and he was so overwhelmed that he worshipped the, the two messengers. And the two messengers said, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant. Worship God. See? Did, Herod didn't do that. Ahasuerus didn't do that. If, if, if you come to me and say, oh, you know, this was good or that was good that you did, or so, I'll always say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. People think I stutter when I say that, but I just say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's a deflection. 
I don't want to be like Herod. He was eaten by worms. What we see in Ahasuerus is exactly what not to be. That's what we see. Because God hates this behavior. He hates pride. He hates arrogance. Look where you're in Proverbs. Look over at Proverbs 8.13. See what God thinks about this. It says here in Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. That's, he's saying there, the fear of the Lord is to hate. Why? Because in Proverbs 6.16, he lists six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him, and the first on the list is a proud look. It's a proud look. God hates pride. So why did God tolerate Ahasuerus if he hates pride? Because, and why does God tolerate, for that matter, proud despots of arrogance and pride? Because he doesn't judge people on the spot. Because he made Ahasuerus. God made Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus chose the wrong road. And God loved Ahasuerus. And God wanted Ahasuerus to turn around and repent. So he patiently waited for Ahasuerus to take the warning from God. And when, when, the, when Vashti refused, then he should have taken that as from God and turn. The Lord is, he's not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness in 2 Peter 3.19, but he's long-suffering to usward. He's long-suffering to Ahasuerus, not willing that any should perish, not willing that Ahasuerus should perish, but that all, including Ahasuerus, should come to repentance, and true of us as well, and all of man. God wants repentance. And he says in 1 Timothy 2.4, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So what should Ahasuerus have been like? It's interesting, because there's another ruler of pretty importance, Joseph. Turn to that, because we need a little refreshment. All right, now, turn to Genesis chapter 50. Verses 4 through 5. Now, you remember this passage that um, Joseph has been marvelously reunited with his father Jacob and with his family. And uh, this is the last chapter in Genesis, which we'll probably never get to in my lifetime. But anyway, uh, he's come now. Jacob has made the blessing on all of his sons, told what's going to happen in the future, and Jacob has died. That's the end of chapter 49. Jacob has died. And so then it says in verses, and, and now. Joseph would like to honor his father's request to not be buried in Egypt, but to be buried in the cave that Abraham had bought for the family in Machpelah. And so look what happens, Genesis 50, verse 4 and 5. When the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die in my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, There shalt thou bury me. Now, therefore, let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. You know what humility is in the case of Joseph? Humility is to not raise ourselves about others. Humility is to not hide our heartaches from others. Humility is to call Martha when the prayer chain needs to be started for yourself. That's humility. It's to ask others, even of lower station, to pray for us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility is to ask others to pray for us, especially those who are maybe in a lower station. You know, this was what Joseph did. This is such the opposite of Ahasuerus. But this is what Joseph did. 
And it's a wonderful example for us. You know, I witnessed this most amazing display of a similar humility in my wife, my wife Cheryl. Just before our third son Joshua was born, Cheryl had a very, very serious kidney infection. She was in a lot of pain. I mean, it was life-threatening. I mean, here's the scene, if you can imagine this. Um, we're in Dr. McCandless's office, La Mesa, and it's me and Cheryl and our firstborn David, secondborn Joseph. We're all together. We're waiting for Dr. McCandless. Cheryl is just about ready to pass out with the pain. David is five years old. Joseph is four years old. And Cheryl, from the severity of the pain that she was, she was going to die, she thought she was, she turned to the boys, the four-year-old and a five-year-old, and in a pleading voice, she said to the boys, boys, pray for me. She said that, please pray for me. It was so heart-touching. The humility of it all, the picture of a suffering mother asking her four- and five-year-old to pray for her. And she no sooner got the words out of her mouth that Dr. McCandless walked into the room and he heard her say it. And he, I mean, it was, it was moving for me. I was like, you know, he said, yes, boys, do pray for your mother. And at that moment, I just felt I wasn't Cheryl's husband. I was just a spectator, privileged enough to watch and observe an amazing act of humility. That was so un like That was so, so much humility, but that's what God wants us to be like. And her infection was very, very serious. And so even though she was pregnant, Dr. McCandless said, this is going to cause some consequences to the fetus, but she's got to go on tetracycline. And she did. And it left permanent white spots on Joshua's teeth. I don't know how Josh feels about those white spots. I've never really told this to anyone before. I've never even told my wife before. But I really appreciate those white spots on Josh's teeth. Because those white spots on his teeth are a wonderful memorial. And to this day, and I've never told this to anybody before, but to this day, whenever I look at Joshua and I see those white spots, I just stop and silently let myself be brought back again to that doctor's office and remember the scene when a dear, suffering mother exhibited such beautiful humility that she pleaded with her four-year-old and her five-year-old to pray for her. Let's be those kind of people. People of humility. Let's not be like Ahasuerus. Let's love what God loves, humility. Let's hate what God hates in us, pride and arrogance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the examples we have of Joseph and Ahasuerus. And Lord, we ask you to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am meek and lowly in heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Tom Cantor is going to continue to teach us from the book of Esther every Thursday and Friday leading up to Purim on March 15th. Tom Cantor again will resume Exodus every Thursday and Friday after March 15th. And again, all those messages from Esther, Exodus, Genesis, and other special messages are available free at iTunes or at friendshipwithgod.org. So look for Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program on iTunes 
Subscribe to the podcast or go to friendshipwithgod.org to download or listen to free messages. Now, this is our last on-air offering of Tom Cantor's latest book called Whosoever Will Versus Fatalism. So again, Tom Cantor's latest book, this is our last on-air offering for Whosoever Will Versus Fatalism. It's going to scripturally help you to answer the questions of what is fatalistic Calvinism, who can resist God's will, what are chosen and changed children, and did God predestinate people to die and go to hell or ordain them and elect them to go to heaven? This is a fantastic book that examines the character of God, his promises, and compares them with the teachings of fatalistic Calvinism and provokes us with the question, what if God misled? And the most eye-opening part of this great book is that Tom Cantor himself was once a fatalistic Calvinist. If you'd like to obtain a copy of this brand new book from Tom Cantor, this is our last on-air offering of this. Call us today at one 800 247 3051. 1 800 247 3051. 1 800 247 3051. Or you can order it online at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse and the Friendship with God and Israel Restorations Ministries newsletter, all there at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also sign up for giving a free gift to a lost Jewish person, Tom Cantor's testimony on DVD and in a booklet form. It's a free gift to lost Jewish people. So fill out the online form at friendshipwithgod.org and you can have that gift sent to you or directly to them with a note from Tom Cantor. Call us today at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Don't forget you can find Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program on Facebook. You can also get Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse posted there on Facebook. So look for us next time you're on Facebook. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org to download or listen to free messages. Again, you can contact us at 1-800-247-3051. Join us again next week.